All right, thanks, worship team. Great song, Marissa. Great new song. Awesome. Nice to see Xavier up there again. I don't know where he got off to at the back after a bit of a break. And turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, if you got your Bibles here. And uh, Marissa mentioned this already. Uh, Andrew does a wonderful job cleaning our church for us. And yet once a year, we ask people to come and gather with us just to give the whole thing a really good spring cleaning scrub down. So I want to thank everybody who was out there yesterday. We had such a great time. About 60 people showed up, uh, all ages from age 4 up until I won't guess uh, how old our oldest person was. But uh, we just had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. There was great food. We got a lot done. It was done really fast because we had so many hands helping, which was incredible. Uh, So thank you to all who helped out with that, Andrew and Rebecca and others who organized that for us and uh, those who cooked the food for us and everything that went with it. We had a really great fun day and the church looks and smells amazing. So thank you so much for that. Uh, I think I forgot to mention offering. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, If you have a paper offering, you can drop it in the box at the back there electronically. You can head to our website, meadowbrook.ca. Oh, up there on the screen. Thanks, Andrew, for being on the ball. All the electronic ways you can give up there. Uh, To that end, as it comes to offering, uh, we, for the last couple Sundays, have been taking up our missions offering. So that's something that we do every spring. And we ask you to take what you would normally give and designate it to missions, maybe give a little extra towards missions so that we can support our missionary families. And so last year in our spring offering, we took in around $10,000, which is incredible. This year we took in $19,215, which is almost twice as incredible if you're as good at math. So thank you for that. And thank you, I know, from our missionaries. Uh, for loving and supporting them in that way. That's just such a wonderful show. There's a practical side of this, obviously, of just there's practical needs to support, and there's a spiritual side of it where we are giving ultimately as our worship, as God is building his kingdom, Uh, but there's also just what this communicates to our missionaries, and one of the things it communicates is, hey, we're with you, and we love you, and we support you as you are out there on the front lines, which is incredible. So thank you so much, Meadowbrook, for that. By the way, uh, apparently, I am part of a gift card ministry that I never heard of before. So some of you got an email from me on Friday morning uh, that didn't quite sound like me a little bit, but it was in my name and my picture was on it. And it said, lead pastor, Chris Walker, Meadowbrook Church. And it said, there's people in need and we're gathering gift cards. And so if you want to send your gift cards to me right now, that would be great. And there was an urgency to it. So uh, obviously a scam. And so thank you, my phone, Friday's my day off. So I was having a nice day off and then my phone starts going, And everyone's going, is this you? Is this you? Just so you know, this is happening. And so we sent an email out saying, wasn't me. Uh, If we are ever fundraising, here's the sneaky part about whoever did this, is that they obviously figured out our church and figured out, went in and got my picture and all those things, and then sent out things in my name. Um, but it was a Gmail address. It wasn't my actual address. So it was a made-up email address, which is pretty easy to do. So always check the email address when you get stuff like that. And if we are ever fundraising, one of the things that was also tricky was that their request sort of sounded like something we might do as a church, right? So it was like, oh, someone has cancer. We're rallying to them. We're gathering gift cards. Like, we have done stuff like that in the past. So, again, it was... It was well done, even if it was a slimy, sneaky thing. Um, If we're ever doing stuff like that, we will always mention it here from the pulpit, and it will always come through the office. It'll come through Rebecca. It won't come through me personally, and it'll be from our meadowbrook.ca addresses. So just always check that stuff. Thank you to all of you who let me know. Uh, We were able to, no damage was done. We were able to jump on it pretty quick. And um, if you get those emails as well, you can report those, and please do. You can report them if you right-click in the corner, report them as, uh, as phishing scams, and then the 
the uh, Gmail and others will shut them down so we can put an end to that. So thank you for that. All right, so we're in Galatians 1. Here at Meadowbrook Church, we're helping people take their next steps with Jesus. That's what we want to be doing always. Whether you are newer to the faith, whether you've walked with Jesus for a long time, whether you're maybe here and you're not sure and you're just checking things out, we're here to help you take your next steps. You need to take your steps yourself, but we want to help you to do that. And so we focus on that primarily in three ways, upward and inward and outward. Upwardly, we want to take our next steps in our walk with him, in our connection with him, in our knowledge of him, our understanding of him. We want to be growing in our relationship with him. Inwardly, we want to be taking our next steps as he does his work in us, as we are being changed and transformed, as we are becoming more like Jesus. And then outwardly, we want to be taking our next steps as we live this out in real life, as we engage with people, as we love others, both inside and outside the church, as we share the gospel, all of those types of things. How are we living out this faith? And so we started a series last week that we're just calling the Freedom gospel. And we're just going to walk through the book of Galatians. Uh, We're going to start, we started last week in chapter one, verse one. We're going to move through the book uh, over the next number of weeks. We'll wrap it up as we head into the summer. And Galatians is a book about freedom and a book about the gospel. And so I cleverly came up with the title, the freedom gospel. And so gospel just means good news. The word means good news. And I just want to refresh us in how good the good news really is. When you walk with Jesus for a long time, you can get so familiar with it that you forget, and you don't literally forget, but it can lose the power. It can lose the passion of it. And so we just want to refresh ourselves in how good this good news really is. So sometimes people ask where I met my wife. That's a pretty common story when you're getting to know someone. Good small talk question. How did you meet your wife? And so I met Sarah a number of years ago, and I was pastoring at the Pentecostal Church in Amherstburg. I was at the Amherstburg Community Church. And we used to do these uh, once a month. We would do Sunday night worship nights. We used to do something similar. Marissa and the team would lead uh, here at Meadowbrook a number of years ago. And they were Sunday night services just once a month, and it was just worship. So there was no sermon. There was no real plan other than we just want to spend time with God in worship. We want to spend time with God and be in his presence. And so we started doing these on uh, the last Sunday night of the month at the Amherstburg Church. We called them encounter nights because we just wanted to encounter the living God in worship. We just wanted to spend that time with him. And so they were great nights. We had wonderful times of worship, wonderful times in his presence. And uh, because God was moving on these Sunday nights, sometimes we'd have people visiting from other churches. And so a group from the Essex Pentecostal Church, a group of young adults began attending these Sunday night services. One of them was a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl uh, who I had noticed. And so we didn't know each other at all. Uh, they, the group came in as strangers, and I got to just chat with them a little bit, just small talk. It never went anywhere beyond there. Um, And then uh, we did our Christmas banquet one year, and so the group decided to stay uh, for the Christmas banquet. And so we, uh, or the next week was a Christmas banquet, so they came and, and they joined us for that. And then that night, after the Christmas banquet was over, um, I got a message on Facebook. So Facebook was pretty new, actually, at that time, which just sometimes I say things and I'm realizing that I'm getting older. Um, Facebook was pretty novel at the time. And so a message popped up in my Facebook, and it was from Sarah Oates at the time. And I went, oh, it's the cute, pretty blonde girl from the church. And she said, thank you so much for having us today for the banquet. It was so much fun. The banquet was wonderful. The food was great. Everything was wonderful. And my powers of deduction told me, this girl's a little into me. Because our banquet was not that great. 
And so we struck up a conversation from there back and forth, just messaging back and forth and getting to know each other a little bit. And after a couple of weeks, it seemed like it was going pretty well. And so I said, hey, why don't we get together? Why don't we hang out? So for the record, Sarah made the first move in this relationship. <laughs> and I said, let's get together. And we got together and, and that was that. We were on our way. And we were engaged not long after that and married not long after that. And here we are 15 years later and it's wonderful. It's awesome. So that is our story of how we met. Um, as we were getting to know each other in those first couple of weeks, uh, again, it was kind of new to have social media. Even texting wasn't really a big thing back then. Email was pretty big. Um, social media was pretty new and, and texting was the old, like you had to push the button four times to get the right letter. Like it wasn't super convenient or easy. And so this was kind of new to meet somebody and, and engage first and foremost. Now that's kind of how people date and that's normally how it happens. But, um, so we're getting to know each other through the, through the screens, right? Through the messages back and forth and tell me about your family and what do you do for a living? And Sarah was a massage therapist at the time and she ran her own business and she, I thought that was impressive at 24 years old and she bought her own home already. And so I'm like this. This girl's a cat. She's a keeper. And, and she's funny and she's smart. And so you're getting to know each other through these words and it's good, right? It's, it's, it's a great start. It's a great connection. But ultimately, that conversation through the words on the screen ultimately has to move on to encounter, right? It, it has to move on to, we got to sit down and actually have a real face-to-face -face conversation because we need to know that this is real. We need to know that the connection is good and the chemistry is good. And you can do that to a point through the words on the screen, but ultimately you need to actually see if there's a real connection here, a real relationship here. And ultimately for us, there was. And so as we are looking at Paul's story today, as we jump into Galatians, Paul was one who had a dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ. He was a one who, who knew the word very well and, and knew the history very well and, and knew his theology really well. But ultimately, he had an encounter with the risen Savior. And as he had an encounter with the risen Savior, that's where his life was transformed. And we love and honor and revere the scripture here at Meadowbrook. And we, we preach it as faithfully as we know how. And we teach it not just on Sundays, but in groups and to our youth and to our kids. We love and revere the word of God. Jesus would say about the scripture, the scripture isn't there so that you can have a relationship with scripture. Jesus said, the scripture is there to point you to me. The scripture is there to bring you into a relationship with me so that you would come to me and that you would find life in me. And so the scripture, the word is there to bring us to a person, to an encounter with Jesus Christ. And so that's what I pray for my kids all the time. We teach our kids the word of God in our household. And there's, there's daily time with dad and the kids in the Bible. And when we bring our kids to church and, and they get the word here and to youth and they get the word there, we're teaching them the word of God. But my prayer constantly is, Lord, let them know you, not just your word, but let them know you. Let them experience you. Let them have an encounter with you. And may the word of God point them to that and lead them to that, that they may find you and find life in you. So let's take a look at our text this morning. We started in Galatians 1 last week. We'll go through another chunk today. We're starting in verse 11. Galatians 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. 
But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that... What I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. All right, so the Apostle Paul... In the book of Galatians, we did a little bit of overview last week. Uh, Galatia is a province, was a province in modern-day Turkey, and so Paul's writing a letter to the churches in that province because there's some bad teaching, there's some bad theology being shared there that he needs to correct. Paul had planted these churches and preached the gospel and started them off on their way, and then after Paul had moved on and gone to plant other churches, new teachers, new leaders had come in, and they were preaching a very different message than what Paul had been preaching. And so in Paul's uh, letter, he is correcting the problem, and he's also starting off his letter by justifying why he has the right to do this. He's saying, I have the right to speak into this because this is the journey I have been on. Some of his critics had been attacking his credentials. They'd been attacking his credibility. And so he starts his letter by telling some of the story of where he has been. And so Paul, as he mentions in here, which we'll dig into a bit today, had spent time persecuting the church of God. He was a very jealous, a very zealous Jewish man, and he had given his life to the Jewish faith. And he was so zealous in what he believed that he was an enemy of Jesus Christ and an enemy of the church. And so for those people at that time, they actually thought crushing the church, throwing people in jail, executing Christians was what God wanted them to do. So they were, they, God is on our side as we do this. And so Paul has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And all of the scripture that he had memorized, all of his theological understanding, everything gets confronted dramatically through an encounter with the risen Savior. And as he has this encounter with the risen Savior, everything transforms for him. 
He is a completely different person now than he was all those years ago. And so he tells us what that journey was like, starting in verse 11 and 12. I want you to know that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That's really interesting. That most of us come to Jesus because somebody talks to us about Jesus, right? You hear it from a preacher, you hear it from your parents, you heard it from a friend or a loved one, or you heard it on the radio or on TV, or you read something. Like, we, we hear about it from somebody else. Paul says, that actually wasn't my story. I had this encounter with Jesus Christ directly. And so Paul, who had all of this fire in him to destroy the church, all of this passion to destroy the gospel, starts off this letter by saying, that's who I was, and then through an encounter with Jesus Christ, I have been transformed. And although your journey might not be as dramatic as Paul's, that same promise of the good news is for every single one of us here. That wherever we were at, whatever we have done, the good news comes to make us a different person. The good news comes to transform us, just as it transforms Paul. So as Paul is getting criticized by the Galatian false teachers, one of the things they're criticizing him for is, well, he's not really a real apostle, right? He wasn't hanging out with Peter and Jesus in Jerusalem before Jesus went to the cross. Like, why is he going around claiming to be an apostle? And so as Paul starts off, he says, this is why I'm an apostle. I met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus, and I received the gospel directly from him. I got it in a a very unique way. And so he tells a bit of his backstory. Verse 13, 14, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father, that he has this history that he wants to draw their attention to. This is where I was. We'll have a baptism service coming up uh, towards the end of June. And when people share their baptism story, that's always part of it. Again, maybe not as dramatic as I was murdering Christians. Uh, But this is where I was, and this is where I am now because of Jesus. Everyone who walks with Jesus has a story that is connected to. Paul would say in the book of Acts, he would tell a little more of his story just to give you a little more context. In Acts 22, 3 and 5, he would say, I studied under Gamaliel, one of the great Jewish teachers of the time, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors, the Old Testament law. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. And a little later in Acts 26.10, he says, On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So that is where he was. He was fiery to destroy the church. And this man who was fired up to destroy the church, God looked at him and said, I'm going to use him to plant churches all over the civilized world. The irony and the beauty of the grace of God at work. So Paul's coming from this very dark place, and you think, man, even if you're zealous for your faith, and even if you're zealous to protect the purity of Judaism, like, he's taking it a little far, right? Like, it's not just that he's fire, fired up and defending his faith. Like, I'm going to crush those who preach Jesus. I will personally go and throw them into prison, and when there's votes to execute them, I will be voting to execute them every single time. So Paul has blood on his hands. And it is the blood of the ones who follow Jesus. The church that he is now saying, hey, please listen to me, guys. 
Listen to me on what I have to say about Jesus. I know I killed you, but this is the work that has been done in me. He is a, a passionate, fired-up man. We learned from Philippians that, uh, that he was also a Pharisee. He was a part of that group. So in our last series, we talked about the Pharisees a fair bit, uh, our last series on Jesus and the sinners. And the Pharisees were often on the other side of Jesus on a lot of issues. I won't get into all of that this morning. But Paul says, that's who I was. I was a Pharisee. I was part of that group. I was an enemy of Jesus Christ. Paul would have been one who delighted when Jesus went to the cross. Right? He was in the area. He knew what was going on in the time. He would have been thrilled the day that Jesus was crucified. And then when the story kept spreading that Jesus was alive and people were getting saved and filled with the Spirit, Paul does everything he can to destroy that, everything he can to stamp out the name of Jesus, everything he can to crush this gospel under his feet. But Jesus interrupts. Verse 15. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, That happened to him on the road to Damascus, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The Gentiles is just anyone who's not Jewish. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. And so Paul acknowledges and ties in here this idea that from the moment I was in my mother's womb, God had something in mind. That sounds an awful lot like what Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, that God had called him and appointed him to be a prophet from the womb. And again, my call, your call, might not be as dramatic as that. I might not be a prophet to the nations. I might not be an apostle or a church planter. But God has called you to something. God has gifted and called you to something. He has handcrafted you in your mother's womb for a purpose, and he's chosen you to live on the earth right now in this time. You could have been born any time in human history. He chose right now for you. And I am one who often goes, man, wouldn't it have been nice to have been born then? Or couldn't I have been born back then? And it's like, that's not helpful to think about such things because he's chosen right now. We are born for such a time as this. And so Paul ties into that verse from Jeremiah that Paul too recognizes that God had a call on my life. The call has always been there. Even before I was born, God had a plan. And now I am living out that plan. And he says, there's three things that God did for him. He set me apart from my mother's womb. He called me by his grace and he revealed Jesus to me. There's three things that God did. He didn't figure out Jesus by himself and neither can we. It has to come from a revelation of God. God reveals Jesus to us. And so that is the thing to pray. When we have people in our lives who we want to know the Lord, we pray, Lord, reveal Jesus to them. And we have a part to pray, play in terms of sharing Jesus, in terms of praying, obviously. Ultimately, they need to have an encounter with Jesus where he reveals himself to them. And so we pray that for those who we love, who we want to see know Jesus. So he, as he comes to know the Lord, as he acknowledges that Jesus' work, he says, I don't go to Jerusalem and start learning right away. I actually head back the way I was coming. And then after three years, finally, I went up to Jerusalem. This is happening in Acts chapter 9. I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. That's the apostle Peter. And I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles. James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went back to Syria and Cilicia. And so 
it's fascinating that Paul, I mean, it's, it's when you read the book of Acts, which is kind of the history of the early church, it just reads like this happened and then this happened and this happened and then this happened and then this happened. But when you actually look into it, sometimes there's years and decades happening in between these stories. Like it's not all just happening on Monday, this happened, and then Tuesday, this happened, and then a week later. Like there's sometimes quite some distance in between these things. And so in the book of Acts, it reads like Paul has this encounter with Jesus Christ, and then he goes around and he starts preaching right away. But he says like, well, actually, there was kind of this three-year gap uh, before I actually got connected to the apostles and before the ministry became widespread. And so for three years, Paul just kind of disappears. He just kind of, he goes home. He kind of retreats back to where he was. And everything that happened in those three years, we actually don't know. But we know that when those three years are over, when he finally goes to Jerusalem, that's when his ministry really begins. That's when he begins preaching and, and traveling and planting churches and all of those kinds of things. But there's this three-year period where he's kind of tucked away. He's, he's on the shelf somewhere. Um, and God is obviously doing a work in him. God is obviously speaking to him. And it's a place that sometimes gets called the wilderness. And in scripture, God regularly takes the heroes of the faith into a time of wilderness. And sometimes it's a literal wilderness, like he'll take them out into the desert. So Jesus spends time out in the desert during the temptation. Abraham spends time in the desert. Israel spends time wandering in the desert. Before Moses gets called, he spends 40 years living in obscurity out in a desert. Elijah gets called out into the desert. John the Baptist gets called out into the desert. Sometimes it's not a literal desert. John the Baptist also spends time in prison. Joseph spent time in prison. But there is a season, and it's normal, I think, in the faith life of everybody, but there's a season that sometimes gets called the wilderness season, where God just pulls us aside for a time. And it's often a season that feels a little lonely, and it it often feels dry spiritually. And people often say things like, I don't feel God's presence like I used to feel it. And I'm, I'm asking these questions that I wasn't asking before. And so there's this time of wilderness where God maybe doesn't seem as close as he did. And, and we're not sure what's coming next. And we're, we're trying to be faithful and trying to, to keep walking with him. And yet there's, there can be times of confusion associated with that and questioning. And if that's you or you've been there before or maybe you're even there this morning, please know that it's a really, 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 really normal thing to happen. It's a really normal thing to happen. That there is a time in every spiritual journey where God puts us in the wilderness for a bit. And often it doesn't feel like anything's happening. Sometimes it even feels like, hey, I feel like I'm moving backwards. I feel like this is going in the wrong direction. And when that happens, just know that God is doing stuff in the wilderness that he couldn't do any other way. And that even though it looks like there's nothing going on in you, on the surface, it looks like you're kind of maybe stuck. Under the surface, there is tremendous activity going on. God is doing a work. And any time I've gone into that season in my life, you go, oh, this is just a drag to be here. Uh, I like not being in the wilderness better than I like being in the wilderness. And yet I look back and say every significant breakthrough, every significant moment of growth, everything that has taught me anything of any eternal purpose was taught to me in the wilderness times. It was taught in the lonely times. It was taught in the dry times. It was taught in the broken times. So I've grown to appreciate it. I wouldn't say I love it, but I've grown to appreciate what God does in those seasons. And there's seasons of refreshing and outpouring and and hope and faith and love where it's overflowing. I love those seasons more, but I've grown to appreciate what he does in those wilderness times, in the lonely times, in the trials, in the difficulties. If that's you this morning, my heart is with you. Be encouraged.
courage. The wilderness always comes to an end. And the work that God does in the wilderness is, is powerful. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So Paul disappears for a time and then comes back and gets to know after this time alone with Jesus for these three years, uh, begins his ministry along the way. He says in verse 22, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So none of the Jewish churches have any idea who Paul is other than he was that guy who killed a bunch of us. So they only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they praised God because of me. How good is that? You know that guy who we were all terrified of? You know that guy you didn't want to show up at your door? You know that guy, that bloodthirsty guy, that guy who was breathing out the murderous threats against the Christians, the guy who was dragging them off to prison, the guy who was casting his vote? You know that guy? Guess who's in love with Jesus now? Guess who has renounced and repented of that and is now preaching the gospel that he tried to crush? The guy who is now building the church that he tried to destroy. The guy who is sharing the truth who once thought it was a lie. The guy who was on the wrong path, who has been restored and redeemed and transformed. He's a completely different Paul than he was. And that is the power of the gospel. That is the good news at work. That the, as the forgiveness of sin comes, as the, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit comes, we become different people. Paul says, moving into chapter 2, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So he had gone up after those three years of silence. He had gone up. He had met with Peter, stayed with him for a couple weeks, uh, got released to go and begin. So he's for 14 years now. He is spreading the gospel. He's planting churches. He's ministering in different places. After 14 years of that missionary lifestyle, he's called back to Jerusalem. And we started to introduce this a little bit last week, uh, that there's a group that the early church grappled with. They sometimes get called the Judaizers or the circumcision group. They're the group that's causing trouble in Galatia. It's the same group. And this was a group that said, it summed up nicely in Acts chapter 15, there's their believers but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and be required to keep the law of Moses. So those who are not Jewish need to kind of become Jewish. They need to start living as Jewish people, including circumcision. They have to keep the law of Moses. So the law of Moses is all of the Old Testament commandments, one of which was be circumcised. And so there was a group that said, in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, in order to be a Christian properly... Not only do you grab a hold of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and in his resurrection, but now you also have to be circumcised and follow all the laws. And that's how you get right with God. And so Paul fought with this group throughout. And so when Paul says, I came back to Jerusalem because of this revelation, he's talking about what would happen in Acts chapter 15, which we call the Council of Jerusalem. So there was a, a gathering as they said, how do we answer this question? There are some Christians who are saying Jesus is enough. There are other Christians who are saying, no, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law. So the Council of Jerusalem gathers in Acts chapter 15, where the apostles and elders of the church all come together. And they say, we need an answer to this question, right? This is important. 
Because this gets to the root of how are you saved and how are you right with God? And so let's get together, let's open the scripture, let's pray, let's hear testimony, let's hear stories, and let's make a decision about where we are at. And so Paul is coming in as someone who for 14 years has been preaching, Jesus is all you need. No one needs to be circumcised. No one needs to follow the law in order to earn your salvation. Jesus has done it all for us, and that is all you need. So that's his testimony as he comes into this council in order to settle the matter. And he mentions that he's brought Titus with him. So Titus is the one that the book of Titus in the New Testament is written to. And Titus was a young man who Paul mentored, who eventually became a pastor. And he brings Titus as part of his evidence when he comes into this council. Because there was a group that was saying, you must be circumcised, you must follow the law, or you're not saved. And so he brought Titus to say, Titus is a Greek, so he's not circumcised. But look at him filled with the Spirit. Look at him knowing the truth. Look at him walking with Jesus. So how can you say that you need to be circumcised when we see what God is doing in his life? And Paul's testimony is, that's what's been happening everywhere I preach the gospel. No one is getting circumcised everywhere I go, but they're being filled with the Spirit nonetheless. They are encountering Jesus nonetheless. They are being transformed nonetheless. And so Paul was preaching that message to the Gentiles, and he uses this picture of racing where he says, I came to this council wanting to make sure that I wasn't running my race in vain. In other words, he says, I got the revelation from Jesus Christ himself, and now I'm coming to the apostles because I want to make sure we're on the same page here. I want to make sure that I'm not off track. I want to make sure that I haven't misunderstood. And there's something beautiful in there because he wants to make very clear we know I got this gospel on a direct line from Jesus. I wasn't taught it by anybody. At the same time, I still checked in with other believers to make sure that what I was preaching was right. So whatever you feel like God is speaking to you, we should always be checking with other believers to make sure that we're preaching the right thing. Sometimes people come to me and say, God told me this. And I go, that doesn't sound right at all. We need to check in with each other and and keep each other to account. No one understands God's word perfectly by themselves. No one hears from God perfectly by themselves. He set us in a body, in a family. We need one another to learn together, to grow together, to hear properly. And so even the Apostle Paul was accountable to other believers. And even though he made clear, I heard this directly from Jesus, he said, I still checked in with the apostles to make sure I wasn't running in the wrong direction, to make sure I wasn't running the race in vain. And as the council discusses these things, as they pray about it, as they open the word, uh, you can read the story again in Acts 15. At the end of it, James, who's the pastor of the Jerusalem church, stands up and says, we don't add anything to what Jesus has done. Yes, there are moral ways we need to live as followers of Jesus, but our salvation doesn't depend on anything that we do. Our salvation depends on everything that Christ has done. That the the gospel is that Jesus loved us, that he came down and walked among us, that he died for us, and that he rose for us. And because of that, we receive that salvation from him as a gift. We don't earn it. We don't add to it. We don't make it happen. It all comes from him. Paul's very, very passionate about making sure no one's adding anything to what Jesus has done. Verse 3 to 5, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The council at Jerusalem did not say, hey, Titus, it's great that your spirit 
spirit-filled and that you're saved and you're walking with Jesus and you're full of the spirit and we see all the evidence of salvation on you, but now we need to add circumcision to that because uh, you're not doing it right just yet. So Titus, who was with me, and he's calling on Titus because everyone knew who Titus was. He was a well-known name in the church. Titus was there. No one thought they had to add anything to his life. He was obviously saved and walking with Jesus. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And so he uses this picture, which is going to come back over and over and over again throughout the book of Galatians. Last week, we talked about uh, there were people preaching a different gospel. And we talked last week about that's not a phrase you get to use for just anybody who disagrees with you on anything. That's a phrase that's got a very specific meaning when Paul uses it. And it's preaching that you have to add something to what Jesus has done in order to be right with God. You have to add something to the cross. You have to add something to the resurrection. So you add your circumcision or your good works or whatever the case may be. It's Jesus plus something in order to be saved. And the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel is there is no Jesus plus. It's just Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. That's it. We don't need to add anything to it. Because if we do, then we're saying, well, the cross wasn't enough. The price he paid wasn't enough. His blood wasn't enough. Triumphing over death wasn't enough. Those things are great. But now you need to add X, Y, and Z if you want to be right with God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That is a different good news. And it's actually not good news at all. The gospel is Jesus, and you don't need to add anything to it. And so in our day, the problem might not be so much people going around saying, hey, you got to be circumcised, guys. Sorry, sorry, guys. Sorry. Sorry, gentlemen. But this is what we got to do now. If you want to be right with God, that's the, the step you have to take. That's not really our problem. Um, that was the problem they were grappling with in Paul's day. But the problem still exists, and it exists anywhere someone is saying you have to do something else beyond that. And so if it's, yes, you are saved because of what Jesus has done, but you also have to do all these good works, that's adding to the gospel. And good works are important. We're going to get to those as we go through. It's not to say that we don't live right. It's not to say that morals don't matter, but it's to say that in your salvation, your salvation is not conditional upon that. We don't work our way into God's good graces. Jesus has done the work for us on the cross. Here's maybe a more popular way I see this arising today. Uh, It's when churches and ministries say things like, to be a real Christian, you must ascribe to our doctrinal statement. Right? You have to check off all these boxes. And if you check off all these boxes, you're a real Christian or a true Christian or a true church. And if you don't check off all these boxes, then you're not a real Christian or a true Christian or a true church. That's the kind of way it shows up today more. And it's subtle, right? Because it just sounds like, oh, we're committed to truth and we want to make sure that we believe the right things. But the minute you're saying in order to be a true Christian, you have to do something, you are adding to the gospel. You are adding to what Jesus has done, a different gospel. We receive it as a gift. That's the only thing we do. We receive it as the gift that it is. And good works are important, and we'll get to that. Good doctrine is important. Don't get me wrong. Pursuing truth is important, and understanding is important. But I'm not saved because I've checked off all the right boxes on a theological statement. I'm saved because Jesus died for me and rose from the dead, and I've grabbed a hold of him. That's why I'm saved. That's the gospel. The gospel is you don't have to do anything. That's good news. 
Because if you have to add something to it, the question becomes, well, what do I add and how much of it? And how will I know when I've done enough, right? How will I know when my theology is perfect? How will I know if I've done enough good works? How will I know if I've obeyed enough to finally earn my way? The good news is you don't have to. It's all been done for you, and it comes to you now as a gift. Now, as you receive that gift, your life begins to change. And as your life begins to change, it becomes important. Well, what do I believe? And am I pursuing truth? And how am I living? Like, our works do matter. Our efforts do matter. Doing good things do matter. But they don't contribute to your salvation or your standing with God. Paul wants to make crystal clear we understand this. Verses 6 to 8, those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. <laughs> but maybe a little snark from Paul in there. You know, these great apostles, these great ones in high esteem, who they were doesn't matter. God doesn't look at us that way. Uh, that's a very consistent way that the scripture looks at leadership, that we do have leadership roles, obviously. They do exist. And yet Jesus would say the leaders uh, who lead in his kingdom don't lead the way that leaders of the world lead. It's not about leading from a top-down, lorded-over-you sort of attitude leaders in the kingdom wash feet and that's how they uh, execute their leadership roles and so Paul's saying they are held in high esteem as the main apostles I don't hold them up there because God doesn't show favoritism they added nothing to my message on the contrary they recognize that I've been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the circumcised for God who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles and Paul and Peter uh, two great pillars of the early church to be sure and God used the same gospel and just sent them in different directions and so Peter was ministering primarily to the Jewish people and Paul was ministering primarily to the non-Jewish people but he wants to make clear that we were preaching the same gospel to both groups they, there wasn't a Jewish version and a non-Jewish version it was the same gospel the gospel was Jesus did it all and that's all we need to know come on up worship team as we get ready to wrap up here verse 9 and 10 James, Cephas, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And so there's a welcoming that happens. And, and even though uh, Paul and Barnabas weren't part of the original group, they weren't part of the original 12, and even though Paul did not have a great track record and had done some truly evil, horrible things, Paul says when they saw the grace that was there, they, they welcomed us in, the right hand of fellowship. They welcomed us. And that's our job as well, to welcome those who are seeking the Lord, to welcome those who are hungry for God. We welcome them to the table. And then they said, the only thing we ask of you guys, the only thing we're going to add to this gospel message here is just make sure you help those who need some help. And so, again, it's not that in the name of Jesus we don't do good things and we don't try to help. It's because we belong to Jesus and because we're being transformed that we increasingly want to do good things and we increasingly want to help. And so out of what Jesus had done, we want you to help the poor, they said. And Paul said, that's good. That's what I've been doing anyway. Paul would take up collections amongst his churches. He'd bring it to the poor in Jerusalem. So that was something that was happening. And yet it's not that, well, God's pleased with me and he's saving me and he's at work in me because I'm helping the poor. Right? That would be adding to the gospel. The gospel is Christ crucified and resurrected, offered as a gift to anybody who would receive it as the gift that it is. Out of that change that's happening, out of that transformation, we seek to 
make the Lord happy. We seek to obey him. We seek to do his work and his word. We want to we wanna do that. And we're doing that because we're grateful. We're doing that because we're thankful. We help out of the overflow of his grace at work in our lives. The grace isn't conditional upon us doing X, Y, and Z. Out of the overflow of his grace, we live out what he asks us to live out. There's a, a phrase here, it was going around Twitter. I couldn't find who actually uh, said it. It gets retweeted and shared a lot, so I'm sorry to whoever it was out there on the internet who said this. Um, it says, the apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works. There are people who died prematurely because of this man. And all they did was love Jesus. That was their great crime. And that's where he was at. And so they beat him to heaven. And yet he met the Lord. He was transformed. His life turned around. He became a different person. He arrived in heaven later on. The people he martyred were there already, ready to greet him. And, and guaranteed, thrilled to see how the grace of Jesus Christ that saved them had even saved the one who killed them there. That's how the gospel works. That's the gospel transforming us at work. Here at Meadowbrook, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. Wherever you're at today, you have a step to take. And uh, our encouragement is always to go away from the message, to keep thinking about it, to pray about it, to see what the Lord continues to show you and, and how he leads you. In that, I'll give you a couple things to think about as we take our next steps upward and inward and outward and upward and our connection, our relationship with him. I think this theme will come up a lot in this series. Can you trust and rest in the goodness of God enough that you stop trying to earn that love. You stop trying to earn that standing. You stop trying to earn that salvation. Can you just rest in that? Can you rest in the grace of God? Can you rest in the goodness of God? Just reflect on that inwardly. Next steps inwardly. Where are you connecting with him? If he's the one that transforms us, we don't transform ourselves. His spirit transforms us. Then the question is, well, where are you connecting with his spirit? Where are you spending time with him? Where are you allowing yourself to be refilled? And, and we all have places in our lives where we feel closer to God than others. You hear me say many times, whatever that close place is, unapologetically go there and spend that time with him. Seek that filling of the Holy Spirit. It might be as simple as coming up this morning for prayer and saying, I just want to be refilled with the Holy Spirit again every single one of us needs that and then outwardly the challenge outwardly at the end of our passage today was hey will you remember the poor now that you're walking in the grace now that you're walking in the good news will you remember the poor and remembering the poor doesn't earn you the good news but out of the overflow of God's gospel at work in your life will you remember the poor how is the gospel working outwardly in your life are you remembering the poor in your life? Are you reaching out a helping hand to somebody who needs it? Is the grace of God moving through you in that way? And if it is, then keep doing it. And if it's not, maybe even this week, there's a place that you can step out and say, you know what? Someone around me somewhere needs some money or needs an encouragement or needs a, a friend to, to listen to or needs a, a shoulder to cry on or whatever the case may be. But where is someone in your life where you can go and just be a, a person to, to be a blessing? to bring God's grace to them in a special way. Would you stand with me, please? As we get ready to close, let's yet again fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's offer him the worship that he deserves with the gratitude that we have, and then we'll close off in prayer together.